This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Weiss, founder and CEO of Rind, the innovative whole fruit snack brand popping up all over the place. Rind launched in 2017 and is now available in about 3,000 stores nationwide, including Whole Foods, CVS, Wegmans, and Meyer. It's also available on a bunch of e-com sites, including Hungry Root, Imperfect Foods, Thrive Market, GoPuff, and Amazon. That's a lot of availability, Matt. (laughs) Um, It's exciting to hear it. I know, and I cut some out. So um, (laughs) welcome, welcome. Um, I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you for, you know, stepping in. We had, um, we were planning on doing this a little bit later and then I had a guest cancel just like a little bit. So everyone should be like giving Matt a lot of kudos. He was not (laughs) prepared um, to, to be like, can you do it right now? Um, I'm always at the ready. I know you are. And we've been, you know, we've known each other for some time and I feel like I've been, I don't know. I think you launched a little earlier than we did, but I feel like we've kind of grown up a little bit alongside each other. So um, it's nice to ask questions of someone who's in a different category, but in a similar sort of um, phase, I think, of of the brand. So welcome. Well, thank you, Allie. It is awesome to chat with you today. And you left a retailer off that list, which was one of my favorites, which would have been Haven's Kitchen back in the day. (laughs) Uh, And I definitely think it's, it's a, you know, a great little coincidence that I think before you and I even formally met that your brilliant um, retail store managers brought our snack in to your (laughs) restaurant and cafe uh, several years ago. And it was a delight. So, you know, it's funny, like, I have to say, I'm just going to toot Haven's Kitchen retailers' horns for a second. (laughs) Like, we were a tiny, I would call us more of an awareness than a sales channel, probably, um, which is something I want to actually ask you about later on in the show. But, you know, these these tiny little places that have um, very intense, loyal customer following, um, they are important to building a brand. You know, especially I would imagine with a snack brand, you know, where it's easier and it's lightweight and it doesn't require refrigeration and it can be like an impulse buy at the counter. Um, but it it does feel like they made some good choices early on and we were kind of early for a bunch of brands, which is kind of fun. Um, but I do want to ask you about that later. Yeah, so we'll put I'll it. give you my quick perspective yeah. and then we'll revisit it. But I would say, you know, Everyone may try to angle for the bold-faced key tier one retailers, Mm -hmm. which obviously pay the bills and are important. But I think there's no substitute for a brand that kind of bubbles up organically in and around a local market that might be their home turf. And outposts like Haven's Kitchen were, you know, really uh, beautifully curated you had a limited set that mm-hmm. accompanied your amazing homemade products. And I think customers look to you as tastemakers, right. both with your own products, but also with other brands that you thought were doing something cool, whether food or beverage. And it was a place of discovery. Yep. And, you know, more and more of those accounts that are independent and intimate and kind of your friendly neighborhood spot are carry just as much sway 
as, you know, the big accounts. You so know, I, I agree. I, and I, I do want to kind of get into the background a little bit, but I feel like we're on a good little tack here. So let's keep talking about it. And then we can back up and talk about your, you know, where you were born and, you know, <laughs> where you went to elementary school. But I think in terms of that, part of the problem especially seems to be in our region, the, this distributor issue. You yeah. know, like if you're not, if a lot, like we were never, you know, hooked up with a UNFI. We weren't even big enough really to be hooked up with, you know, a Rainforest or a Dora's. Um, so I think you just sent us product directly, if I'm not mistaken. It's, <laughs> I think a lot of brands have a hard time getting to these little places because some of the, you know, DSD distributors are, are really punishing in their contracts. And we're not big enough, nor do these little accounts, you know, want to or have the, you know, buying power to work with a UNFI. So is, did you, did you build that up with these smaller kind of, you know, community built type of retailers? Were, were you yeah. just sending them product directly for the most part? Or yeah, it was, it was more out of necessity than anything where I was new to the CPG industry. I, you know, I, I had a vague understanding of how, the distribution and route to market um, system worked. Yeah. But it felt like you weren't able to share your story about your brand and why you thought you deserved a spot on shelf mm -hmm. without telling that story directly to a buyer. Right. Um, and so all I knew in the beginning was uh, walking my neighborhood <laughs> and identifying the places I loved to discover brands and have a cup of coffee and have some breakfast. And, um, those were the, the most interesting ones. My very first account in New York city was, and is still an active account is called court street grocers, yeah, you know, which the is clean like Turkey, man, the clean yeah, Turkey is sandwich. the best sandwich in the world. Some of the best sandwiches. Yeah. They're super irreverent. You know, they yeah. sell amazing craft beer locally and, they have a whole bunch of wacky snacks including and rind. it's just yeah. including rind. And I distributed everything by myself for the first six months right. when I, I had all the product produce and I went to all my local watering holes and favorite spots and told my story because that felt hearing, <laughs> you know, approvals and rejections mm -hmm. felt like the education I needed to know what was working, what wasn't with my pricing, with my product, with right. my, you know, brand fit. And I wasn't going to get that getting the adrenaline rush of getting it into a distributor, but then not knowing whether or not it's moving right. and having no connection. Right. So, so in a way, it's a liability on one hand so. that we can't quite work with these distributors. On the other hand, it's a major asset <laughs> because it is. we it is. see but face think, to face. Yeah, absolutely. I just think you have to know it's very seductive to try to get into as many big doors as soon as you can. Right. But I don't think you really know how tested your product is and, you know, where the blind spots are and what people love yeah. and how to like cultivate your, your super fans, unless you are visiting stores on the regular, yeah. you're getting to know purchasing managers by name, you're helping unbox and put product on shelf. And then you're listening to customers and you're, I would pop into Havens and yeah. you guys would tell me your strawberry blend is really moving. Right. And you have this in a smaller size and customers are saying this and that. And it's like, wow, that's yeah. the, that's the market research. Any newbie brand should, you know, should pay big bucks for, and you don't have to, you can do it very bootstrappy way. Yeah. And, so what if it takes a little while to learn? I mean, that's the whole part of the process. Right. It's a journey. Well, let's back up into how you landed on that particular product. Because as you're saying this, I'm thinking about brands that come to me and, you know, don't necessarily fit in a grab and go situation or, mm -hmm. you know, aren't, you know, one of the great things about your particular bag of snacks is that none of us are making our own dehydrated fruit snacks by ourselves. You know, like we can make nut mixes or chips or, you know, even tortilla strips or popcorn or pretzels or things like that. So, but yeah. Rind was completely unique for a court street. They're not, that's not what they're making. Um, right. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, what, I know you were not, 
originally, you know, you weren't born a CPG guy. <laughs> you had, a, <laughs> I think, like two decade career in finance, from my understanding. Yep. Um, so then what what did what was the impetus for it? And how much did you think about category before you went in? Or was it just like this is this is this product and it needs to exist? Like, how did you come at it? I guess is the question. Yeah. Um, I, while I wasn't born a CPG entrepreneur, uh, <laughs> I was born a snacker uh-huh. and I grew up in a family that preached a lot of like healthy foods and trends right. before, you know, before kale was cool mm-hmm. and I begrudged it as a kid. I really just wanted like, you know, lunchables like all my yep. other buddies in class. But, um, instead I was getting like carrot sticks and, and, you know, turkey sandwiches and, um, <laughs> Where did you grow up? Sorry. I grew up in Miami in South South Florida. And uh, so my parents were were super like early adopters of healthy foods. And we always had, frankly, it was my, it was a real great thrill to like walk Publix, which is, you know, the big Florida Mm -hmm. retailer and see what was new. And, you know, and just to me, that was like my, uh, great like snack satisfaction of being like, Oh, I haven't tried this before. I want to try this. And seeing what I could sneak by my parents, that was kind of had, you know, faux healthy, but I could enjoy it. And nothing was really that great. I mean, at the right. time you probably remember there was like those snack wells. Um, and it was like the birth of the like hundred calorie snack packs and stuff, but everything was still heavily processed, even dried fruit, which is like the most should be the most single ingredient you know, snack category of them all had somehow along the way been like hijacked by candy makers Mm -hmm. and turned into, you know, fruit gummies or fruit candy. Yeah. Welch's that has like 5% real fruit or something like that. Exactly. And it's like, it's like, you know, made into a gummy mold that looks like, you know, fruit, (laughs) but it's really like a cartoon of fruit Mm -hmm. and hooking kids on what they think fruit should be when it's the farthest thing from it. So, Where it stemmed from was I didn't necessarily look at categories and say, here is white space. I love to snack. I've always enjoyed dried fruit. And it's just convenient. It lasts a long time. And it's bursting with flavor when done right. Mm -hmm. But the flavors and the fruits just haven't seen innovation in like 100 years. They're just raisins, prunes, apricots. It's the set, one of the saddest sets in grocery is <laughs> dried fruit. It's like where, where products go to die. And it felt to me like with the confluence of clean eating and unprocessed foods and, and ugly being the new beautiful and people understanding the variability of fruit that let's bring some excitement to this category with fruits that are more aligned with a new generation of snackers that look for tangy, bittersweet, mm-hmm. not super sweet yep. um, or, or saccharin, but things like, you know, kiwi right. and persimmon and orange, everything they might be enjoying on the rim of a craft cocktail. Well, now you can snack on a whole bag of it. That yeah. was kind of a light bulb. No, I mean, it, it was a light bulb. And then how did you go about, you know, what happens like, ah, after the light bulb and you dry off out of the shower and then you're like, okay, wait, how am I going to make this? Like, I am going to buy a dehydrator. Like what what was the next step for you? uh, Buying a dehydrator and a mandolin that sliced Uh things very thinly and evenly was like the first, like my... My purchases on Amazon at the time, if someone were to look at this, would think there's like a crazy person. Oh my gosh. They would have thought I was like making (laughs) some, something like the amount of like pouch bags and like, I mean, IV. My heart bags. And I had, I just had my first child. And so it was like a lot of baby stuff Mm -hmm. and then very sharp blades. Right. (laughs) Like for like custom slicing. Right, right. Anyways, um, that was, you know, before I set out to blend various dried fruits and source them and develop a a spec, I wanted to be like, you know, do do these fruits dried taste good? Mm -hmm. And it was trial and error as all, you know, food adventures probably start out at. 
And it was in a, like a co-op apartment building in Chelsea, uh, neighborhood in Manhattan, where it was an old, old building. It was like a hundred year old building. And the power was like super spotty. And I had this, it was an Excalibur uh, 12 rack machine. I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Right. And I would just slice on weekends, like tons and tons of melon. I was really big into like, can mm-hmm. I make, mm-hmm. because who doesn't like watermelon right. fresh? It's just evokes joy yes. and summer, summertime experiences. So I was like, well, let's make dried watermelon and see what it tastes like. And I did, it took, it took so many watermelons to make the dried product, but I did it. And the first batch tasted like cotton candy. And I was like, oh my God, this, this is amazing. Is amazing. Right. And then like the more I did it and had these dehydrators running for 24 hours at a time, uh, I one day blew the power to the whole building, which was like a 12-story building. Oh, my gosh. And, oh, man. They were like the crazy guy in 12B. Oh, I was like kicked off the board. I happened to be (laughs) on the board. They're like, dude. Uh, So I shared the snacks with everybody, but they were like, enough. Uh Like, go get a commercial kitchen. Go figure this out. You cannot run a business out of your apartment. I was like, it's kind of a hobby. (laughs) Anyways. That was the genesis where it was like, okay, now let me understand what a co-packer is and how I can find one and how you can make something at scale that you think is really tasty and, you know, pretty simple as far as process. We're not, you know, we're not mixing a ton of different base ingredients to make something else. Mm -hmm. We're using beautiful, bright, pure fruit and we're keeping as much of the rind on as possible and turning it into a you know, single ingredient, awesome snack. Yeah, very cool. When do you think, you know, so so you had, you know, you found your co-packer, you had, let's say, did you start with like three SKUs? I, it's exactly what I started right. with, three SKUs. Um, so you started with three SKUs and you're now like in the ecosystem and you're now like ready to go and start selling. <laughs> do you remember... Anything that like alarmed you or surprised you? Do you remember being like, oh, wait, I should have thought of this or, um, you know. I just found everything to be a thrill. Yeah. And now I should say I was doing all of this. It's an important point while I was still gainfully employed. Right. So I hadn't left my my day job, my career in finance, uh, which was at a mutual fund for you know, almost 20 years, um, I had been incubating Rhine nights and weekends. I mean, just proverbial side hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, what got me super excited, and is one other piece of background I think is important, is that the last 10 years I was with the funds, I was covering the food and beverage industry. Mm, okay. I was looking for really exciting, open, tr- big open trends in better for you, healthy snacking, plant-based, finding public companies to invest in that could be beneficiaries of these big secular trends Mm -hmm. toward health and wellness. And that research and that job led me to attend a number of industry events um, like Expo West, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I'm sure your listeners know all about. I've heard of them. Mm -hmm. Super Bowl of snacks. (laughs) And Going to that show just opened my eyes to an entirely different world. Right. And it just got me thinking about what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't meeting other entrepreneurs and hearing their dreams and stories and watching them build something special. It was, I have some cool ideas of my own. Mm-hmm. I like to tinker. I'm going to try my hand at building my own brand. And that was the thrill. And was Ryan the first shot or was there something else no. you tinkered with that didn't quite pan out? Yeah. Lots of things on the cutting room floor. Right. Um, for a long time, I wanted to do something called wise fries, which was kind of a riff on my last name and oh, to yeah. do like healthy, you kind of like Terra chip style, right. um, you know, root vegetables. By the with way, it, you can, it. I believe <laughs> there might be a way for you to do that. I think so. Yeah. I think rind may move into vegetable, root vegetable snacking one day. Maybe so, one day. Maybe one day. And so um, when did yeah. you quit your day job? Like what was the moment where you were like, oh, was it either like you were like, I can't do these two things anymore? Or was it like, oh, okay, I think I'm like 
onto something now. And I feel okay. a little of both. Yeah. It felt like you, you know, like, kind of like I was living a double life, yeah. but with a, in a way that was just gnawing at me where I couldn't sleep at night, right. to be frank. And when I was at my desk at my, at my job, all I could think about was rind and, you know, it was all consuming and it was in the beginning harmless. And then it became very real. And I forced myself into the decision. And the good news is I had an employer and a mentor who I'd been speaking with, you know, who'd been a mentor to me for those two decades in starting my career. And when I shared with him, this was my passion, uh, instead of showing me the door, mm-hmm. he sort of said, you've got to do this. Aww. I support you and I believe in you and I see how like palpably happy you are. Right. And so don't palpably happy. Stock. Yeah. It was like, exactly. He's like, don't <laughs> pick stocks. He's like, build, yeah. build fruit snacks and, yeah. you know, market them and share your story. And so that was a real, I don't take that for granted having someone like that to inspire and encourage in my life. Um, so yeah, that was sort of how it came to pass. But the real breaking point was, you know, ping ponging from my desk in Midtown Manhattan in my old job to the Javits Center mm-hmm. for the Summer Fancy Food Show in 2019, manning my own booth. And those two worlds collided yeah. that show where <laughs> it was so exciting meeting Whole Foods buyers and the head writer for the New York Times, you know, for the food section Mm -hmm. and all these people that were interacting with your product. And then going back to my desk and looking at a blinking Bloomberg screen, there was no comparison. I said, I, you know, I'm going to do this. I looked my wife in the face and got her buy-in. She knew I was going to make this decision. And with everyone's support, I jumped off at the very beginning of 20. Amazing. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about what happened after that. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm back with Matt Weiss, founder of Rind. Um, So I didn't ask about branding because I do want to get there, but what I... I think what I really want to get to is sort of a, a like a something I think a lot of emerging brands are dealing with right now, which is almost this like abundance of riches when it comes to sales channels. And what I mean by that is that I think post COVID, there are marketplaces and potential avenues for sales that were not existent. Um, before some, you know, D to C, um, you know, e-commerce sites that have changed their structure over the last year and a half that are now open up to, you know, brands like, you know, Imperfect, for example. Then you have, you know, these, you know, six to eight new 15 minute or less fast delivery services that are popping up all over. Um, you know, there, it feels like there's just every day a new potential channel or at least, you know, a new potential sales opportunity. And I guess you know, I know that you are, first of all, it's interesting to me that you are in grocery and drug. I'm curious about that. 
I'm curious about um, how you analyze these different e-com opportunities. Which ones do you see and why as kind of building awareness for the brand? Which ones do you see as like real true sales channels? How are you thinking about, you know, are you just like going everywhere that sends in a request because that's how you're building it? Like there, you know, I think a lot of us are sort of grappling just with like the amount of bandwidth we have to try to be getting into the sprouts of the world, but also to be kind of handling the incoming from a lot of these opportunities that are that are great because every opportunity is great. But as you know, not every opportunity is great or great for the same reasons. So I'm curious how you think about it Um, and a little breakdown of the way your brain compartmentalizes everything. You know, is it a, is it channel like natural conventional or is it e-com brick and mortar or is it, you know, awareness? I like this. I like this topic a lot because I believe there is a, you know, a, there's no excuses in the, in the environment today. There's never been a better, more abundant time to sort of get a product out to market. And it doesn't have to be the marquee whole foods and sprouts. Um, you can, you can generate a lot of amazing trial discovery feedback through, like you said, all these new channels that are emerging by the day. And some of them can be large businesses for you in time before you even have to go through Uh, big distribution. So we recognized this very early on, um, quite fortuitously, where, again, we launched officially when I took the leap and and left my job in January 2020. We raised a seed round. And the first three accounts that anchored our our sort of launch were Whole Foods, Mm Mid-Atlantic, Wegmans, and the Fresh Market. And so it was about 300 odd doors we were launching into, big banners. And our date of on-shelf coding was uh, like the first week of March in 2020. Sorry to ask you this in the middle. Are you merchandised in like salty snacks or are you merchandised in like grab and go or are you in different places in different stores? And is that ever up for discussion? Oh, definitely. I mean, we try to steer the discussion to where we think we'll have the most success and um, opportunity to thrive. I would say in most instances, we've started in either the that dried fruit set where we, you know, through our packaging and through our value prop, like really are you pop something out a new. Lot there. Yeah, you yeah. pop, exciting. We are showing really differentiated velocities. And um, in other instances, we're put in these new and emerging alt snacking sets or yeah. functional snack sets, which you're seeing more and more retailers embrace. Um, and we're seeing really good performance there too, because our neighbors are exciting and hip and cool. Mm-hmm. And so, and then I'd say the third, where we're starting to really put some resources behind, is produce. Yeah, I was going to say produce. Where everyone wants to be. Yeah. And um, the perimeter of the store does make a lot of sense for our product mm-hmm. because we merchandise really well next to fresh fruit. Right. And we are the same thing, but in a much more convenient, snackable form factor. So if you put our kiwi chips near fresh kiwis, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so in, in accounts like Giant Eagle... Uh, which are first one of our first big conventional partners. We are actually in the produce department, right, which is very, very, very cool. exciting, and that you know has big big legs to it. But yeah, what I would say is back to the alternate distribution yeah. routes and why that's emerged as such a formidable new channel. We saw it happen in real time, where we launched that first week in March, just before the world changed, mm-hmm. into these amazing brick and mortar partner doors. And very quickly, we saw some like EKG type sales patterns where sometimes the the shelves were laid bare Mm -hmm. and our product was gone during those quarantine stock ups. And other times they weren't ordering because if you weren't selling Purell or, you know, toilet Toilet paper, paper. you weren't, Mm -hmm. you weren't, you know, deemed essential, which made sense. So super erratic. And that was our first like real brick and mortar test in the by the same time, 
we had a foothold in an account called Hungry Root, mm -hmm. which is this amazing curated they won't take grocery <laughs> subscription service, which is amazing. And they're also based here in New York. And I linked up with them in November of 2019. And they had placed their first order, I think, for January. And things were going along nicely. And then things went crazy. Whoa, right. Whoa. March through May, it was. Uh, the pace, the size, and the frequency of the ordering just went vertical. Yep. And it was very clear they were seeing some exponential subscriber growth. And that while this might be a momentary pop, I think what it really did was just pull forward consumer behavior that was already starting right. to move in that direction by like years. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what the experts are saying. I guess one of my questions about that, and I know I'm hopping around a little bit because I do want to get back to the channel thing, is like about, about you know, because you were talking about when you were a little kid and how you would always go to the store to look to see what was, what was new hmm. and that that was fun for you. And I, I'm very similar. Like the grocery store to me is not you know, sometimes it's a have to, but most of the time it's just, it's like Candyland. Um, <laughs> and I was listening actually to a podcast with the guy from Gatier, you know, that he's just, he's kind of just a big personality and he's super fun to listen to. And he was just saying how, you know, in 10 to 15 years, you know, so, like 70% of all grocery shopping is going to be done online. Um, and, you know, I think everyone's been kind of saying, you know, they were saying in five years, it would be a 20%, but COVID kind of accelerated that by maybe two or three years. Yeah. I mean, I know you're not an expert in, you know, nor a profit. Um, but I think what I'm hearing you say is that putting, putting some eggs in the e-com basket, even if that was like you know, the hungry roots or the imperfects of the world, they probably are going to see some adjustment after people start shifting back. They're not going to see it go all the way back because that, that ship has sailed and people are buying online. Yeah. Um, but I'm just wondering, you know, are you just, are you just kind of saying like, you just want to make sure that it's not even your that. bases are it's covered? A little bit of that. It's a little bit of like hedging your bets yeah. and being diversified, but more than anything, I think it's, generational change that's occurring. And I do think the same way you've seen kind of department stores go the way of, of dinosaurs and, you know, mall, big mall anchors have now been disintermediated. Yeah. Every industry is facing its disruptive moments. Mm -hmm. And I think grocery, everyone felt was like the last bastion and who's going to ever buy produce online and not you know, have and them not, pick them yes, you know, feel like, yeah, let like me feel the apple or whatever. And I think, Younger generations are much more um, open-minded and embracing of, um, you know, uh, new ways and new ways to discover brands and easier, more convenient solutions that save them time and hassle, like not treating grocery shopping as an errand, right. but as something with a few clicks, you can learn the whole story behind a brand, yep. understand its certifications, the founder's story, like that's pretty amazing. And nothing, no experience in brick and mortar can, right. has ever really come close to that experience. Right. We can tell um, our stories much more. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I, yes, that is true. I'm thinking about like the sign and target we had where I was trying to say like everything I wanted to say in like three lines. And it <laughs> like, as opposed to, you know, if you click on us on an e-com, you know, site, what yeah. I, what I'm less convinced about for emerging brands is in that same conversation that he was having, the guy from Gatier, he basically said, and we found out that our optimum number of products are, is 1,500. We started mm. with 300, we went to 2,500, and we know algorithmically, you know, 1,500 products. And he was like, if you're not buying one of our six shampoos that we offer, then you should be buying your shampoo from like a specialty place, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. and I guess I worry a little bit about discoverability 
and Mm -hmm. awareness building and getting lost in the crowd. Like on one hand, yes, you can tell your story. And I mean, certainly for us, you know, we cross merchandise beautifully on e-com. It's very hard in brick and mortar. You put us with salmon on Fresh Direct. We sell the salmon out. You can't put us next to salmon in a grocery store because those buyers don't speak to each other. So there, I do see the assets. I worry about, I, I worry about, I guess, um, sticking out, you know, or, or, you know, getting, getting that discovery. I mean, I guess I worry about it in grocery stores too, but I guess maybe speak a little bit to that. I think what I like about all these new channels is that the speed with which buyers make decisions and the layers that a, a brand or supplier has to go through, they just, they just move at much different paces and they're faster. They, you go through one, you can get a decision in like same day yep. over Slack yeah. versus a regimented, you know, yeah, uh, nine month reset yeah. schedule where you, you may or may not hear back. And when you do, you don't get the feedback versus mm-hmm. you send samples, someone loves it. And they're like, how fast That's can you good. onboard? Right. It's just such a breath of fresh air. Yep. And I am a big believer in, um, you know, the marketing rule of seven, which is, I think, you know, there, it takes seven impressions Mm-hmm. of you know encountering a product or a brand before a customer makes a decision to consciously or actively try it yep. and buy it and each of these channels to me is one of those impressions yeah. where you know they may see you uh in a in a Facebook ad or in an Amazon listing uh they may they may have heard of you through a friend that tried you at Haven's Kitchen they right. may have spotted you on a shelf at CVS or Thrive Market. It's, it takes like the saturation yep. of these emerging brands to get through the breakthrough moment where someone says, all right, you got me. I have seen this everywhere. I'm in my local Whole Foods. I'm going to buy this off shelf yep. or I'm on Hungry Root or Imperfect doing my weekly shop. And wow, Ryan, I've heard of these guys. Mm-hmm. And that's without those multiple like uh, spider web sort of I should say more tentacles than anything, but like without being in a lot of those different emerging channels where people, your core demographic is spending their time and their, both their leisure and their, you know, professional time, then you're unlikely to convert. Right. And if you're just in the grocery store, even if it's the most marquee store of all, it doesn't play the, into the flywheel effect as richly as if you are peppered into their lives in subtle yeah. ways well, they're and it everywhere. just kind of they so, find you. So we we have to be to some extent. Who do you say that. no to and why? That's a good question. I that comes up a lot, you know, who saying no is some of the hardest things you can do because in the beginning the as your brand gets out there and you go to a food show like the the inbounds can really be a total flood and I think you really just have to be true to you have to have a clear vision of where you want to be in three to five years and focus pretty maniacally on achieving that goal as opposed to being distracted by lots of, you know, quick hits or adrenaline rushes right. that might drive up your sales. But no. you, again, you might not know. So in other words, maybe an airline comes knocking. It's like, wow, I love your stuff. Let's put this in XYZ airline before you're even really in stores and then you'll just be rotated out. Right. And maybe, maybe you won't, but it's very exciting to think, wow, I'll just, I will provide you with a quote that is, you know, I barely make any money on because I'm going to be seen by so many people, but, and not a knock to the airline business, but I no, think right. we weren't ready for it, you know, three years ago, but maybe now we are. Right. And so accounts you can succeed in are the ones you say yes to. And if you don't see a path to actually having healthy, off-shelf right. turns, then you should not take it. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking to, um, I had, he was actually a guest on the show last year. His name's Miguel Leal and he was the CMO at Cholula and he just launched a new brand um, called Somos. So everyone. Cool. Go by. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. It's making a lot of news. Yeah. He's wonderful. Um, and, you know, I was talking to him and and he was saying like, you know, brands make a little bit of a mistake early on, you know, 
thinking about marketing and awareness a little bit, you know, obviously you need to think about it, but he's like, there's nothing worse than getting someone aware of your brand and them not having a place to buy it. Mm. You know, like you really need to, you need to focus on being in enough places where once that, let's say rule of seven, right on that seventh impression, someone can actually be like, I want this now. There's an action to take. There's an action to take. And I think that airline is a really good, right? Like, even if I love this thing, I might go try to buy it once, but I'm not going to remember it, you know. Yeah, you kind of have to create a bit of a slow burn. Right. And plant those seeds along the way. And you're making bets on not just what products you think people are going to like, but where they're going to enjoy coming across them Mm -hmm. and encountering. So it's almost like your choice of real estate and your uh, home for your brand is just as important as what you're selling and making sure that's differentiated. Someone once put that to me in a very like elegant way where you have to be uh, as thoughtful about your, um, where it was basically like have as differentiated a retail strategy as your product itself. Mm-hmm. And so if you see the puck going to uh, boutique fitness, right, mm-hmm. or co- corporate snacking or grocery subscription, and you put your sort of market research hat on and say three to five years from now, I see so many people finding about finding out about snacks in this setup or in this uh, vertical. Right. Um, then you can be early, right? whether it's food service, whether it's uh, fitness, whether it's hotels and hospitality. Now, COVID threw a wrench in a lot of that because, you know, being in an airport, not necessarily on the air, <laughs> not on the airplane, but <laughs> right. being in an airport certainly is a great, exciting channel, not necessarily great business, but it's certainly exciting from branding. Mm-hmm. So is being in a Google or Facebook corporate cafeteria. And if you were in an airport, if you were in food service or if you were in corporate. Right. In April of 2020. That was an albatross and not an asset. So you can get unlucky too, but being in these grocery subscription boxes and new marketplaces like Imperfect, like Thrive, the real secular winners over the next five, 10 years that a whole generation is learning and enjoying a new way of, of, buying their groceries or their easy to make recipes, that feels like a really big, you know, a good bet to be making. Yep. No, I think that's a great point. So speaking of sales, I know for the first chunk of time you were doing them. Mm-hmm. How did you, did you hire for sales when you, you know, raise the seed round? Are you still, you know, is it outsourced? Are you leading it, you know, without details? Just yeah. curious. You know, in the beginning, I I probably held on to everything too long, yeah. but it was important to me to uh, know everything, <laughs> know yeah. everything, um, the good, the good and the bad about what I was building. Right, and so stayed super lean. Uh, my brother in law, who was also in the finance world and who left the safety of his career um, to join me on this on this fruit odyssey <laughs> at the beginning of 2020, um, was he and I ran the business throughout the whole pandemic. So right. 2020 to the beginning, like March, 2021, it was just us for, you know, those first 15, 18 months. And then the first hire we did have uh, FT was a director of sales. Mm-hmm. And that's really been great because I love being the storyteller and uh, helping come in and explain the passion behind the brand and the vision where right. I want to take but the it. The management but, of the promo calendar isn't your jam. Yeah, not, not my jam. <laughs> uh, I like that slightly less. So, um, I have a but, question about this though. Yeah. Okay, so so the way that I think about sales is like kind of the way I guess I think about most things. There's like strategy, big picture, three year plan. Where do we want to be? you know, what are the right channels? Who's, Mm -hmm. you know, who's got a reset, you know, set reset? Who Mm -hmm. do we have to pay slotting to? Who, you know, and then there's the like, I'm going out and I'm 
hi, it's me again. Hey, hi, can I send you samples? Hello, hello, hello. And you can kind of hire for that role. Sometimes, you know, person number one, who's great at strategy, hasn't been boots on the ground in a while and isn't quite ready to roll up their sleeves again. And sometimes the the more eager sort of hunter, uh, person number two, isn't quite adept because they've been they've been given their marching orders in their previous roles. They haven't necessarily set a strategy and implemented it from the ground up. So that's just how I think about it. Um, yeah. And and why, why I guess why sales well, I guess why hiring makes me nervous in general. But you know. Um, trying to find that, that perfect synergy of those two types of people in one human. So how did right. you approach that hire? Like, what were you looking for? And uh, sounds yeah, like I definitely happy. wasn't, yeah. I'm, I'm really happy. You know, I think instead of finding it in one person, I found someone who is extremely organized and diligent and can frame the opportunities and understand the vision we have and then go after those methodically mm-hmm. inside the way the game is being played right <laughs> where i as an outsider who was new to cpg just i was relentless right and so if someone said no i was like well why not right and why do i have to wait till the reset cycle just bring this in now right like this is this is awesome uh <laughs> you like it strip. i like it it's like <laughs> let's go and again, if I was rejected, you know, continuously, I would move on. Right. But by and large, I was just uh, fearless. I think you kind of have to be yes. and have thick skin and know not everything's going to be an acceptance, but you got to knock on a ton of the doors that you want to be in and just not be afraid. Right. And if they reject you, then it's a learning you, experience. It's a learning experience. Also be as as good at reading people as you can, because maybe they gave you an opening right. and maybe they said they gave you, they dropped the breadcrumb of, you know, you know what, I am going to take a look at this set next month and mm-hmm. not till next year. And so you know, maybe send samples to the office, blah, blah, blah. and you're, that's your window. You got to kick the door down. Right. And, um, to, to that, I think what can really help a little off topic to your question no, it's talk, is that, okay. you know, your product may still be, rough around the edges. I think anyone that says they their first iteration of their product that they launched was you know, their best right. iteration is not sane. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's, uh, I think, but what you can control for is kind of how your brand looks and feels and reads on shelf. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, I had taken the time to really, um, come to the market with what I thought was just killer packaging. Right. Beautiful, striking, um, easy to understand product, like dried fruit with the skin on. Why the skin? Because it maximizes nutrition and minimizes food waste. All of that could sort of be hammered with the visual and a strong name and a tagline, keep it real, eat the peel. And so that looked like a shelf-ready million-dollar brand when it was still an idea in my head. Mm-hmm. And so that helped open up a lot of those doors where that our, our product and the branding was pretty arresting to buyers. And I knew our product was always a work in, in process. It's dried fruit. It's highly variable season to season, right. sugar levels, et cetera. And we've been working, but the branding and the concept were always at yep. a, a a tier that allowed us to punch above our weight and gain initial distribution and then use that as a stepping stone into additional distribution and allow that snowball to sort of build. Yeah. That's no, that's, I think that's really smart. And of course, like one, two, three back to me, you know, I'm thinking like (laughs) we, I, I just thought our initial packaging was so pretty. Of course it had no messaging on it. (laughs) Literally at all. I was like, what do you mean people like don't know what to do with it or like why they should? I mean, I was such a minimalist, I think. And I was coming from not any sort of commercial like mindset that that's been um, that's been an interesting education. Like just 
messaging hierarchy. And I think when you're a founder, you know, your problem isn't no, having enough to say, it's having so much to say that you need to pare down to like, what is the key essential thing that matters right now, yeah. right here on the front of this pack or on the corrugate or on the back or, you know, in, in the top three bullets on D to C because no one's reading past that, right. you know? And for us, it was, I think the challenge was like, we just had so much explaining to do. Um, but and you're right, you say, found it. So you were so, this is, you know, it's fruit. Here's the peel. This is why you have food waste. You have nutrition. Yeah. You have, you know, beautiful four letter, you know, it, it <laughs> is great. Yeah. Thank you. No, I am a big believer in like really short, short, strong brand names that also happen to rhyme with kind, which is like <laughs> one of the biggest, yeah. you know, most admirable players right. in the natural food space wow. over the last 20 years. Yeah. But. I didn't think Haven's Kitchen was going to be a CPG <laughs> product when I opened it. And like whenever, when we did do the brand refresh, everyone was like, how wedded are you to the name? <laughs> and I'm like, unfortunately, my friends, that <laughs> ship has <laughs> sailed. Right. But it grows into itself. Yeah. What I would say is Hopefully. like, what I, what I also see though, is while your packaging may have required some education or it was foreign to people. I also think form factor mm -hmm. and innovation and form factor is almost equally powerful to the beauty of graphics and architecture and, and hierarchy of messaging because it's not trodden ground. Right. Like sauces just didn't come no. in the gotcha. pouch form factor right. like you started with. And so that's a showstopper right there. Right. It wants you to be like, well, what is this? Yes, that's and true. Those are, those are good questions. And I've seen that, you know, in so many different areas within our space where the form factor is the innovation in many ways. Yeah. The product has obviously got to be wow you right. just as much. But, you know, the way Bark Thins mm -hmm. made snackable chocolate in a yeah. pouched bag, a thing as bark and not as a candy bar. Right. The way, you know, our, the way perfect bar, right. I should say, merchandise themselves in the refrigerated set yep. and not with all the other bars or yep. flow water puts themselves in a Tetra pack. Yeah. Like, I always go back to also like pretzel thins. They were merchandised yep. in deli, not exactly. in salty snacks, which I always And it made all the difference. Cool. Yep. It, it, it made all the difference. So. Okay, last question. Mm -hmm. um, this is when I give you like the bullhorn, I think it's called. I always reference a bullhorn. I've never actually held a bullhorn, <laughs> but I like the, the visual of it. And you, you're meeting, you know, I'm sure you do too. We meet a lot of emerging brand founders and teams. And there's a lot of the same stuff that no matter how many times you, you get told it, you don't really internalize it until you go through it. And there's stuff that we want to tell the people that are a year or two behind us. You mm -hmm. know, what are the lessons that you wish someone had like really hammered home for you that you kind of had to learn the hard way or that you'd like to share with emerging brands? Like what are the one or two things that you just wish you could like scream from the rooftops to <laughs> all of us? Cool. You know, I love this. Even though I feel like I'm still start, starting out. I'm we sure are. You feel I mean, but way. this, but it's, you know, I say this a lot, Matt. I, I would rather learn from you than someone on how I built this, who <laughs> like just exited for a billion dollars, because honestly, right. they don't even remember. They don't remember what it was like to be where we are, you know? Right. So well, I think, I think that's, I mean, that's partly why I do the show. Cause like, that's why I love the name of your podcast. We're all in the sauce. Mm, thanks. Um, swirling around, percolating. What I would Literally. say is, uh, as someone who's from Miami and grew up in the 80s and <laughs> loved the Miami Dolphins and Don Shula, winningest NFL coach ever, uh, <laughs> he had a quote that um, is amazing. And it's just, it reads like a successory, but it's very... Uh, it, it cuts to the heart of it, which is it's the start that stops most people. Mm. And it's just so easy to talk yourself out of starting something. Uh, you may have a great idea and you say, oh, someone else has someone thought of this. Or, oh my God, this, to take this from zero to one and actually like file a patent or do the research or whatever. Like you can maybe close your eyes and think, 
you know, oh, if I did this, 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 and you've spent like five to 10 minutes dreaming about it. But the more you go through it, it becomes so daunting and yeah. you'll find any little excuse to just derail you and say, I'm not going to do this. So if you take it to a first action item and you actually start and your start is solid enough, maybe you incorporate your business as an LLC on LegalZoom. <laughs> maybe you file for a tax ID number. Maybe you contact a co-packer, right? Maybe mm -hmm. you secure the Instagram handle. Like, I don't care. Just do something right. concrete that gets you skin in the game and forces yourself to take a second step. And so taking that little tiny step, it's like 99% of the people before you have just stopped at the idea yeah. and you've gone to the next one. So taking it down to tiny, tiny pieces, you're not going to build a giant business overnight. You're not going to build a giant brand. The odds are obviously against you, but no one else is doing it unless right. you do. Yeah. So starting is one, you got to start. Right. And two, um, there's a lot of homework involved. There's yeah. a lot of, someone once said like starting a, if you want to start a CPG brand, you got to love paperwork. Yeah. And no one hears that or gets that. No. But like we've all filled out umpteen new item forms and vendor forms and certificates of insurance. And like there's a lot of mundane details. I think that's because everyone has seen like so many freaking founder panels where people are <clears> just like, you know, on 40 under 40 or 20 under exactly. 20 or, you know, 80 under exactly. 80 or whatever it is. Like I think the the that sort of like founder fetishing, yes. fetishizing, like yep. unfortunately gave a very false impression of what this job is actually like. I think that's right. Yeah. I think like the entrepreneurship has been made to be very glamorous and sexy, but that right. everyone should really know that nothing is without an insane amount of hard work, uh, support, mm -hmm. <laughs> some luck, and, but perseverance and just like, not to sound trite, but you got to just keep powering through it. If you believe in something, if you really think your idea is, or your brand or the way you're approaching something, it could be a marketing angle then. And you're just like, it keeps you up at night mm -hmm. and you're not doing it. You're missing an opportunity. And so starting one and then two, just doing plant a million seeds, like, Oh man, you just never know the power of relentless networking. Mm -hmm. And it's a great industry to do it yeah. because people it's a are friendly really, industry. it's friendly. Yeah. You get to try each other's products. It's loose and fun. It's, I'm sure there's plenty of cutthroat, but you can seek out the ones that are cool. Yeah. <laughs> and these shows are amazing. You'll just, you'll hear people share little you know, words of wisdom along the way yeah. and take the time to like mentor you, you'd be surprised. I don't know that that happens in many other industries to the same degree, um, but it's powerful. And yeah, you just, if no one else is going to do it, it's on you. Um, so take the leap. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show and doing it with alacrity. Um, <laughs> where do you want me to send, where should we be sending people to buy Ryan? Awesome. Awesome. Um, I would say if you want to learn as much about us as possible and really get the the uh, the full story, the whole fruit, uh, come to RyanSnacks.com and uh, and find us there. And there, if you want to look up our store locator, you can. Awesome. But um, come into our brand directly to us and we'll take good care of you. Amazing. And Armin, um, thank you again for engineering, as always, helping us through the AirPod technical issues and difficulties that inevitably I have every week. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and all of you listening, um, you know, as always, I appreciate it. I'm glad it's helpful. Let me know um, if there's anyone you want on here or um, if there are any brands you're particularly interested in, you know, just, I, I do a lot of cold calling. Um, and I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.